Welcome to The Source from the ATA, conversations about telehealth and virtual care from the thought leaders, experts, and visionaries who are working to change the way the world thinks about healthcare. I'm your host, Greg Matthews, and our guest today is Michael Baird, the president of Customer Solutions at Amwell. In 2013, Mike was a co-founder and the CEO of Avizia, which was acquired by Amwell in 2018. Mike has also held senior positions leading strategy, marketing, and product development teams at Tandberg, Cisco, McKinsey, and Dell. Join us as we dive into the future of virtual care with Mike Baird. Mike, thanks so much for being with us on ATA Source today. Great to be with you. One thing that I would love to talk to you about, because telehealth has really captured the imagination and attention of a much broader audience today uh, than it could have had, uh, you know, even six months ago. And for the benefit of those listeners who may be a little bit newer to the space, I'm wondering if you could share with us some of the differentiation that you see between simple connectivity versus uh, what what Amwell would call true telehealth. You know, it's it's interesting because we've experienced exponential growth for uh, well over a decade now, and and yet there is nothing like what has happened in this period. And I think for a, mm-hmm. a lot of reasons, uh, you know, we. Uh, uh, we, in an effort to get to as many patients as possible, we've relaxed some guidelines and, and many providers have looked to any tool possible to help serve their patients. And as a result, there are a lot of really good sort of video conferencing applications that are being used for telehealth. And on a surface, there's nothing wrong with that, right? The more that we can help patients, the better. But I do think um, that's a little bit as we've moved from sort of a crossing the chasm event of early uh, early adopters to an early majority and now a mass majority, I think as folks come into this, uh, they may be unfamiliar with uh, a lot of the, the the history, a lot of the regulations, a lot of the reasons why you really need a robust enterprise telehealth platform. And so, you know, our, I guess our view is anything that gets people to use telehealth in some way is a great thing. But as they sure. advance their use cases, as they get into more services, as they want to get reimbursement, they find that having a kind of a full featured telehealth platform is very different than, you know, FaceTime. You know, FaceTime is great. It's mm-hmm. a wonderful thing. I use it with my, my mother all the time, but it may not have everything that I need for uh, a seamless uh, healthcare visit. And so some examples of that are things like, you know, getting an email to let a patient know that, uh, uh, you know, to, to, to prep for a visit and what to expect and uh, setting up their computer in advance, uh, having uh, pre-visit checks that check your, your audio and your video and your microphone or your internet connection in advance, mm-hmm. uh, things like little text messages to, uh, to tell you that your visit's coming up or if you need to change a visit or something like that, or being able to quickly escalate to a phone call if you need to, or, or bring in other patients on the fly. Uh, and and I think more importantly, having a seamless integration with uh, electronic medical records, uh, so that we can you know minimize documentation load on providers, but also having all the backend advantages of being able to do copay collection, insurance checks, and getting a visit summary. So those are all the things that take this from you know at its core. You're correct. A video visit is sort of the the foundation. I need to see my patient, and we can have a discussion. But when you want to have real healthcare that's embedded in the flows, there's a reason for all those 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 features, and 
so we think it's great that people try it. We think it's great that they get used to telehealth and they get comfortable with the idea that they can deliver quality care this way. But we also get excited for them to need those other things that will help them deliver care in a more efficient uh, uh, manner. Excellent. And I actually, I'm really curious because I remember back from my days at Humana, uh, if if I remember correctly, Amwell really started primarily as um, as a, a company that partnered with payers, uh, but certainly now has hundreds of hospitals and health systems on board. And it seems like most telehealth companies will either focus on the payer or the provider or the consumer. But now Amwell is able to incorporate all three of those different models. Is that right? That, that, that's correct. Uh, and, and so part of that is we, you know, we, we, we serve over 50 health plans. Um, we serve over 2,000 different hospitals. And you know, so obviously the, the requirements are higher, right? They expect a HIPAA-compliant, TITRIS certified platform. You know, those things are very important. Uh, they're going to have to do, you know, Medicare beneficiary checks and, and things of that nature. And so that, that raises the standard. But there are also other benefits that, uh, you know, a larger established telehealth company can bring in that, you know, we have a feature called the exchange, for example, where we can actually take some of our hospital customers and their providers and make them visible to a health plan to be used. Uh, and so some of those kind of back end things, because of our position in the marketplace, because we serve so many people uh, and so many customers, you can start to uh, bring value in a network effect uh, that enhances the value to all the folks that, that use the platform. Excellent. I, I'm really curious. You mentioned earlier, you know, you referenced the pandemic. Um, obviously, there have been a lot. There's been this explosion in the use of telehealth by necessity, what are some of the regulatory changes that have happened, you know, sort of on the fly here that have enabled that? Um, and, you know, are those changes that do you think may carry on once the pandemic is uh, behind us? Yeah, there, there are a number of changes. They come in a couple of categories. There's been technology changes. There's been regulatory changes. There's been reimbursement changes. And I think some of those uh, need to stay uh, for, for the good of, of patients. Some of those will most likely be rolled back and with good reason. So, for example, uh, there was an immediate uh, relaxation in the HIPAA uh, standards. And, you know, that makes sense in, uh, as we all experienced, uh, almost overnight, two-thirds of Americans were locked in their homes. And mm-hmm. if, if you're a provider who didn't have a telehealth system set up and you're a patient that didn't know how to use it and you really need to check up on somebody, uh, being able to use something like FaceTime very quickly made a lot of sense. Now, over the long run, we've got to have those HIPAA regulations are there for a reason. And I think if anything, mm-hmm. we've seen how important privacy and, and data protection has become in our in our very tech-centric environment. And so that's an example of something that I think won't change uh, sure. over time. In, in the long run, we'll, we'll go back to uh, you know requiring that. And by the way, that's what health systems want. They want to protect uh, their, their patient data as do, do health plans. Um, there were other things like uh, uh, reimbursement changes where uh, overnight, you know, Medicare and Medicaid services expanded telehealth coverage for Medicare beneficiaries and, and reimbursed at the same rate. Now, this is an example of something that we have long wanted in the telehealth industry mm-hmm. and, uh, and obviously is benefiting patients. You know, we saw 
in uh, uh, just comparing a random week in April, uh, the weekend of April 18th, we saw 1.3 Medicare members receive some telehealth services. If you went a month before that, uh, the weekend of March 7th, uh, there was only 11,000. <laughs> so, so that's an 11,000% increase in a month and a half. That tells Sorry, 1. you- 1.3 million? Yeah. In one week, Whoa. by the way. So that tells you that there are people that desperately needed this and needed to use it. And I sort of hope that once you've shown that efficacy, there's no need to roll that back. Uh, you know, there's a lot of industry uh, work to make sure we cement these gains because the way that Medicare goes obviously tends to drive uh, the private insurance company behavior. And so that's mm-hmm. one that I think is much more likely that stays the same. Uh, sure. so, so that's an example from both ends of the spectrum. In the middle, you have things like licensure. And that one's a little more complex because you can't just wave a magic wand at the federal level. Um, I mean, you can for some, you know, VA doctors or, uh, you know, for some, you know, Medicare uh, docs. But generally speaking, states own their licensing uh, rules. And so many of them put up temporary uh, compacts where, uh, through June 1st or whatever the date may be, you could, uh, you know, doctors from one state could assist in another state. Uh, I suspect that will go back. Um, you know, we would love to see that continue because in general, it lowers uh, the, the hurdles for, for getting providers uh, able to see patients. It increases supply and helps you distribute it in a more efficient way across uh, the country. But generally speaking, uh, state uh, medical boards have long uh, wanted to have more uh, control over uh, right. how, how that's practiced. And so I suspect that will be something that we don't see stay, but I, you know, I hope that we do. Uh, it certainly would help uh, care. So that, there's a few examples of some of the changes that we've seen and where we think we'll, it'll go. You referenced the fact that private insurers often uh, follow the bellwether of Medicare as it relates to reimbursement and, and other practices. Do you anticipate that we're going to see a lot of that among private insurers or had private insurers already been more open to adopting telehealth uh, than the federal government anyway? Um, yeah, it's been interesting. I don't know that I would use that as a blanket statement, but over the last five years, there's been a, a slow and steady increase in things that are reimbursed. So for example, today through the health plans that we serve, uh, 80 million Americans have telehealth as a covered benefit in their plan. Uh, so, uh, so many insurers do offer some coverage, you know, for urgent care visits or, or whatever it may be. Similarly on kind of the Medicare side, we saw things like, um, you know, you could, you could do a telestroke visit and get reimbursement if it originated in a rural area. And, you know, last year they finally dropped the, the rural area, uh, origination requirement. So slowly, but surely we've seen those things chip away. Most States, uh, have some form of parity. Uh, in, in in coverage for 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 telehealth, but what what we aren't at yet is sort of that whole scale widespread. If it's telehealth and if a doctor signs off and if we have a quality visit, you can reimburse it just like an office visit. Uh, I would say that uh, we're still not quite there, uh, uh, other than this this odd period where most insurers are working in good faith to help make sure patients are are, are covered. But I do think we're going to see a step level shift in that coming out of this, because one of the things that's challenging when you're looking at reimbursement is that chicken and the egg issue. You know, uh, Mm -hmm. I live in the DC area and for many years I've gone and lobbied with many great groups uh, on the Hill to try and enact uh, measurable change. 
And so we've talked to MedPack or other things where mm-hmm. uh, you, you've got the the analysts looking at cost and they've always struggled because of that chicken and the egg effect. Well, we don't know what it's going to cost and we're afraid that it's going to be a lot and we don't know what people are going to use. And so we don't want to approve it yet because we're not sure. And so you sort of end up in the, you're in the stuck pattern. What's been really interesting coming out of this is we now have a lot of data. Uh, we have a lot of data on patient satisfaction. We have a lot of data on usage. Uh, you know, We sort of got to jump 10 years into the future of adoption and see what would happen. And so I'm optimistic that coming out of that, uh, we'll be able to get some great data. Um, and there's a lot of companies in the telehealth industry that have come together in a coalition to share that data that hopefully uh, will help drive uh, further adoption on, on reimbursement. That is exciting. And you actually anticipated my next question perfectly, which was, what are some of the things that you're able to do now that sort of help prove the case to be able to use for the future? And I know that we're in the middle of this thing. So if you can't share specifics, I understand. But can you give us a hint as to what sort of things you're seeing in terms of patient satisfaction, usage, uh, you know, anything that's sort of popped out that's interesting? A couple of interesting statistics. So every couple of years, we go survey providers and patients to get a view on how they view telehealth. And in 2019, when we did this, we found that 8% of patients uh, had used telehealth. We found that 22% of doctors had used telehealth. And if you Mm -hmm. ask them what they thought it would look like in three years, patients, 67% of them anticipated that they would use telehealth at some point in the next five years and 69% of providers. So roughly two thirds said they would use it. So interestingly, if you fast forward to now, (laughs) they didn't have a choice, right? We sort of went overnight uh, and we don't have all the numbers, but it's estimated that around 50% of all patients use telehealth uh, in some form during this uh, uh, pandemic. Um, So obviously that represents a bit of a crest, you know, it may back off a little bit. We don't know uh, if they'll all keep using it. But what was interesting in that is when we look at our user data, you know, we typically see around a 4.85 to 4.9 out of 5 rating, uh, mm-hmm. so kind of a five-star rating effectively of telehealth, the 98% patient satisfaction. People love it. And so our view is once you've used something and you like it and you see what it can do, you're probably mm-hmm. not going to go back from a patient side. So the, so the demand is there. If we look at the supply side, I think a lot of providers, uh, historically, it's been sort of led by those early adopters, very innovative doctors that really wanted to look for ways to uh, expand their ability to serve high-risk patients, uh, uh, things of that sort. But suddenly, we entered this period where virtually every doctor's office in the country was closed down. And if you were a provider, you had no choice. And what's interesting is, you know, we saw overnight. I don't have the exact numbers, but it was probably well in excess of quadrupling the number of providers on our platform. I mean, there were a couple of weeks about a month ago where almost every night we would have a health system call us and say, I need to sign up 2,000 doctors you know, in the next three days <laughs> or 1,000 doctors or 5,000 doctors. And so these health systems that probably had 50 docs or 100 docs that were using telehealth suddenly went to 2,000. Now, wow. uh, in that process because they've now experimented with, they've tried it, they had successful visits with their patients. I have a hard time believing that every single one of them goes back to not using it, right? Uh, Right. On some level, there will always be some that would prefer to do other ways and and that's okay. But if you were able to use it and you had success, 
and, and you now have an account and you now know how to use it and you've installed it on your computer, well, why wouldn't you continue to do it? So that's a bit of a long-winded answer to your first question, which is, well, where does this work? And I mm. think if you were to ask any technology provider in telehealth, we tell you that we think that roughly a third to a half of all visits in healthcare could be done via telehealth in some form or fashion. And you know, we see that as being agnostic across service lines. So it doesn't matter if this is oncology uh, support or uh, neurology or pediatrics. Uh, you know, some areas you can do more more than others, but uh, at the very least, you think of things like you know pre visits to check in with a patient and, and get patient data, post visits to follow up on a surgery, and a mm-hmm. lot of things where the primary treatment path uh, works very well on telehealth. I mean, we've seen and proven time and time again on things like behavioral health, patients actually prefer it. They're more honest with their doctors. They like. Uh, <laughs> The, the privacy uh, of that environment, or things like telestroke, where clearly the time savings that dramatically improve patient outcomes are, are preferred uh, to in-person mm-hmm. care. And so uh, I guess I would phrase it as, you know, the demand now exists from patients and they've now tried it. The providers, many of them who may have been reluctant, have also now tried it and seen, well, that actually worked pretty good. Uh, and so in many ways, we sort of uh, overnight leveled up. You know, we moved up a stair step yeah. in, in our adoption of telehealth. Now that will lead to a new wave of demands and requirements. You know, it's been interesting. We see a big push for, uh, you know, when you've got the early adopter markets, things that they're willing to try or do or experiment are very, very different when you hit the mass majority. Now right. it comes down to things like having a very seamless user experience and, uh, you know, being able to uh, uh, do things very easily, it may come down to, well, now that I've tried it in some of these use cases that I probably wouldn't have thought of before, well, could you just tweak this thing a little bit for me? Because I could do more. You know, for example, they may want new peripherals, uh, new scopes or things that could be used by a patient at home to, you know, augment the value of that interaction. Uh, So I think we've sort of now introduced a whole new wave of hopefully enthusiasts into the market that will help us evolve to the next, you know, the next uh, iteration of, of telehealth and, and improve uh, our offering. And so as we think about that, and by the way, that, that was a, a brilliant response, Mike. Thank you so much for articulating that so clearly. I, I'm thinking about our current situation is sort of like the python that eats the pig. Um, and <laughs> yeah. there's this huge lump in the middle. But as we think about what happens after that, you know, what are some of the things that you think are likely to change over the longer term? And I'm thinking about things like, you know, is this going to put strain on hospitals that have potentially overinvested in their facilities? Or is this going to change the way that physician practices work and form? Um the staffing has to be crazy at a time like this to try and get doctors up to speed quickly enough. But what does that look like over the long term? And are there implications for the industry that I'm not even thinking of? Yeah, no, that's a great, uh, it's a great question. Um, well, a, a couple of themes that I think have have come out of that. Um, so f- for one, uh, you know, we don't know what's going to happen with COVID. If there's going to be echo impacts of this, you know, we think this will be one of the lasting coronaviruses that we are going to deal with for, you know, the next hundred years. Uh, eventually, we'll have immunities and things. But for all we know, that that idea of having facilities where we uh, put tons and tons of sick people together is probably not the best thing. 
So if, if, you know, as a long-term implication for real estate, you know, a lot of hospitals have been very focused on building bigger and, and better facilities. You may find we move more to a segmented approach where, you know, obviously if I need to have surgery, I need a surgical center of some sort, Right. but I may not need, uh, you know, it's funny. One of our most successful customers is doing a, a, an emergency department triage use case where patients come in and they see that it's a 40 minute wait to see the ED doc. But if you come into this room next door, it's a five minute wait because we'll see you over telehealth. So if you now know that that works and you had a decision to build a building, knowing what we now know from COVID, you may choose to instead have a, a smaller, you know, uh, heavily technology centric surgical center and then cover more of other things from a home environment. Uh, yeah. From a patient standpoint, if I'm a consumer and we've proven this time and time again, anytime consumers use something that's really cool and makes their lives better, <laughs> once they start using it, they really don't go back, right? And I'll point to what the ATM did to tellers and what uh, online banking has done to ATMs, right? Like, you know, at this point, uh, you know, we've, we've, we've moved on, you know, we use Uber and we, <laughs> we take mm -hmm. pictures of our checks and just email it. We do other things because it was so great. So I don't, I, I think if you're a private practice um, or any kind of uh, physician, you want to be where your patients are. And I, and I think if I was a private practice doctor that was steadfastly opposed to telehealth and you know your competition down the street was willing to offer that, well, who do you think is going to get a greater number of those patients you know, going forward? So I think inevitably people will now see, oh, well, this works and more and more people are using it and you know, they don't want to be left out. This is just like if you go back to the web transition, many mm -hmm. sites were just brick and mortar and they didn't have a web presence. Well, very quickly, that became an untenable uh, solution for your strategy. Exactly. Um, I think the, the, the last part of that is just on efficiency overall, is we know there are massive costs in the healthcare system. And, and of course, this relies on good reimbursement. This relies on interstate licensing compacts. On some level, when the care demand spike, as they did in New York, the ability for telehealth to more efficiency, efficiently allocate providers to a source of need was completely demonstrated. And while that was a very, you know, a microcosm of that use case, those things happen every day across the country, whether you're in a, a rural area or a city that doesn't have enough specialists or whatever it may be, I think hospitals are seeing that this is a demonstrable uh, advantage to uh, manage your efficiency and thereby by contain your costs. And that pressure isn't going away. If anything, it's stepped up and a lot of hospitals are facing very significant challenges as a result of, of this pandemic. And they're going to be thinking about those things going forward. It is going to be very interesting to see how all that plays out. Um, and it's hard for me to believe, but we actually are getting close to being out of time here, Mike. I have one final question that I wanted to see if you could weigh in on. And that is, you know, we've, you, you referenced up front the fact that having a FaceTime with a provider is different than using an enterprise telehealth solution for all the reasons that you articulated, to being able to manage the, uh, the workflow, to be able to manage data exchange and so forth. I'm also really curious about what you see as the future uh, of telehealth in the sense of, you know, being able to incorporate things like remote monitoring or e-prescribing or 
uh, you know, d- data collection from um, wearable devices and so forth. Any anything that you think is going to be particularly interesting there in terms of being able to integrate with a you know quote unquote traditional telehealth platform? Yeah, I, I mean, I guess one side note would be the benefit of things like FaceTime is they raise the bar of simplicity. So, mm-hmm. and Apple in general does this really well, right? If you look at the iPod there were dozens of uh, MP3 players before the iPod, but it was much simpler. And then people adopted it. And things like FaceTime remind us that you've got to have good user experiences. So from a patient side, what comes out, I think all of us as technology vendors know we have to be uh, making great user experiences. In terms of technologies that'll be very impactful, I think uh, you know things like ePrescribe is pretty embedded in telehealth today, but some things that you could see... Uh, uh, increasing. So remote patient monitoring is a great one in that, you know, think of that as the next uh, the next wave, right? So now we have telehealth, we have providers that are on call, they know how to do these visits. Well, how do we go even deeper into use cases that might have been uh, harder to do before? And that was kind of the, the, the thing that I referenced earlier by having new diagnostic devices or wearables mm-hmm. or things that I can monitor in real time. And I've got a doctor ready to see them if there's a spike clearly that's going to be uh, uh, of increased need, in particular, if you see not only the, the, the longstanding increase in chronic conditions in the United States, but now think of like COVID patients at home that need to be sequestered. Very valuable. I would, I would point to things like AI as well, where uh, you know, we want to be able to triage patients very effectively. You can imagine a 10-question survey that could very quickly lump you into a low, medium, and high risk for COVID with very different you know, treatment parameters. Um, and then the last one I would say from a provider side that's sort of in play now but will be essential is the embeddedness within the EMR. I really think yeah. that just as, as we need to make life simple for consumers with FaceTime-like simplicity, that's what the doctors need. You know, EMRs are not necessarily everyone's favorite tool, but they're a reality of life. That's the operating system of healthcare. And so having telehealth be very embedded in that platform let you do all these other things. I can capture data from a wearable device at home and get that in the EMR. I can check, uh, you know, I can do a medical medication reconciliation and make sure that uh, uh, the, the the formulary is 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 appropriate for that that patient. Uh, I can make sure that when I'm doing documentation, it's just in one spot and I can quick launch, uh, you know, a visit. Those are all the things that drive provider adoption, and I think we'll see those themes like we do elsewhere in tech. It's all about simplicity and easy experience and, and interoperability uh, for both patients and providers. Outstanding. Mike, this has been terrific. I know that our listeners are really going to appreciate your perspective. Um, thank you so much for being with us on ATA Source. Uh, and thanks to all our listeners. For those who want to be able to connect with Mike, uh, we're going to have prepared some show notes that you'll find on the ATA website where you'll be able to connect with Mike and with Amwell. Uh, So for all of us here at the ATA, we'll see you next time. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Greg.